Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Uh, tonight, V Radio is honored to um, present the Iraq Veterans Against the War. I had a bit of a technical problem right before the show started, so you're going to have to give me just a moment to add our guests. Uh, in the meantime, a uh, couple of pieces of news to bring up. The uh, this guest in particular, his name is Josiah White. He's a member of Iraq Veterans Against the War. Uh, excellent um, organization as far as uh, activism against the war in Iraq. And uh, we're going to be very happy to have him on today. Uh, he ha- also has contributed recently a um, essay that will be going into the newsletter. And once again, I apologize for the brief problem here is I remember what it is I needed to get started as far as the show, but um, <laughs> basically just had a problem like right at, like right before the show that got me disconnected, so we're going to get that fixed right now, and we're good to go. All right, we're ringing him. Hello? Sorry about that. Not a problem. Might, um, is there anything you do to be a little louder? Uh, yeah, one second. Okay. Um, in the meantime, uh, thank you all for tuning in to V Radio. Please visit vradio.org, v-radio.org. Um, and there you can find archives of previous shows like this one. Uh, in addition to that, we are still looking for donations for this month. Uh, please you know, consider a donation to help keep V Radio on the air. And in addition to other projects that we've been dealing with as far as the radio show is concerned, we also have... Uh, begun work on the Awakening comic book adaption. Uh, I'll be writing the script for this comic book adaption of the film Awakening done by Doug Millette, the engineer who works for the system, you know, systems engineer for the space shuttle program who created this video, which is going to become somewhat of a YouTube sensation that puts down the hard data as to why we support a resource-based economy as the solution. Are you there, Josiah? Yes, I'm here. Um, well, uh, first of all, please introduce yourself to our audience. Uh, my name is Josiah White, and I am a uh, former United States Marine uh, out in San Diego going to school right now. Um, how exactly detailed do you want it to be? <laughs> well, go ahead and uh, just uh, go into what basically what is next is just to say, you know, uh, describe what you did in the military and and then we'll get into what made you decide to become an activist against the war. All right. Well, uh, I joined the infantry to be in the inf- – I'm sorry. I joined the military to be in the infantry, uh, which is self-state the toughest job. So pretty much what I did was carried a rifle, walked around, and waited to get shot at and uh, or and or get ex- blown up. So um, – 2006, I was in a small town called Ubaidi in northwest uh, Iraq. It's a real small town. Not a lot of people know about it. But I was at a hospital, and uh, I was making sure that no one uh, came in with bombs or weapons or anything like that. And a suicide bomber got a little too close, detonated, and injured me and another Marine and killed two Iraqi soldiers, along with himself, obviously. So that pretty much ended my career. I sustained damage in my left leg, or both legs, left arm, and I lost complete hearing in my right ear. Um, 
so about two years later, I got out uh, on a medical discharge, and uh, I can't. I can't. At the time when it's exactly, I didn't. I stopped liking war or anything like that. It was a very, very slow process. It probably started when I got injured because uh, that was a very bad time for me, as, as you can imagine. So, uh, my friend who was in the unit with me joined Iraq Veterans Against the War, and at first I thought he was a nut. Uh, hey, uh, Josiah, just for a quick second, um, you're coming in as if you're speaking a little bit too close to the mic, and your volume is kind of cutting up and down. Are you are you moving around as you talk? Yeah, sorry about that. Let me uh, let me make that a little better. No problem. Good? Now, now you sound perfect. Now, please continue. You said your friend joined Iraq Veterans Against the War. Right. So I saw him wearing a T-shirt, and I thought he was a crazy person uh, because I was still in that mindset that uh, anyone uh, anyone against the war is. Uh, you know, doesn't support the troops, hates America, et cetera, et cetera. So I was still in that mindset, and I just uh, I didn't like what he was doing. So once I got out, though, I uh, started doing my research, and I, I was removed from that military mindset where they're constantly re-indoctrinating you, trying to keep you, uh, you know, loyal to the cause. So I got out of that. I did some research, and I started thinking, uh, you know, why exactly was I there? Because a lot of people would come, a lot of people would ask me, do you think you're doing a good job over there in Iraq? And do you support the mission and stuff like that? And first I said, yeah, I think we're doing a great job. We're helping rebuild. We're protecting everyone. Uh, but then slowly I, I, couldn't, I couldn't answer that question anymore. I didn't know exactly why we went over there. Uh, I remember all the stuff that we did over there, and it just didn't seem like we were helping the Iraqi people. Uh, so uh, I started losing, I, I became disillusioned in the war, and then eventually just in war in general, I started looking at previous wars um, that America has fought, and I, I couldn't really justify a lot of them. And uh, eventually I joined Iraq veterans against the war, and I, I tried to do whatever I can for them. Uh, uh, in the next couple of weeks or so, there's going to be a lot of actions due to the ninth anniversary of the uh, Afghanistan war, so I want to do a lot of stuff with that. So that's pretty much it. All right. Well, um, it's definitely excellent to have you on tonight, and I, I did read your essay that I decided to go ahead and push forward and include in the Zeitgeist newsletter. Uh, it was very well put together, very moving, too. Uh, how long did it take you to write that? Uh, I was sitting in a cafe one day, and... I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about My Suicide Bomber, which is the title of the essay, and, you know, why he did that, and uh, drawing parallels between me and him. Uh, you know, we we're serving our cause and fighting for what we believed in. Um, so I could, I could totally imagine being in, in his shoes. I could totally imagine me strapping a bomb to my chest and blowing myself up because that's what... I had always told them to, you know, die for the country. Right. Uh, in a fit of, uh, of disgust, real quick, I wrote it. And then I didn't really think about it anymore. But then I went to school, and they said, well, write some sort of personal narrative. So that gave me an excuse to write more. And I just wrote more and more and more. It added page after page after page. And eventually, I think I got it all out of my system, <laughs> maybe, but... I'm pretty content with the essay. 
Okay, yeah. You know, I, I definitely uh, enjoyed reading it. Now, um, when you said, like, for example, you know, you, you kind of came to that decision that you, you understood where they were coming from, that I myself have I've done a lot of studying about the, the, sub, the particular subject, just like what life is like for the average Iraqi. And it, it does become, I mean, it's like I don't support anybody killing anybody, obviously, so it's not like I, I support the Iraqi resistance or anything. But when you start to really learn about the, like, their life over there, it, it starts to make sense to you, particularly one of the things Ron Paul said was, you know, how would we feel if somebody was doing this to us? And I don't know that necessarily the average American citizen really does that, that they don't really put them, you know, put it into their own perspective of what it would be like, um, particularly with some of the actions of, uh, like, I remember actually there was a, there's um, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, they have their website, and they have this brief documentary called Bloody Contracts, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but uh, they had a, a video, like that video that those Blackwater guys put up of them driving along the street shooting random people to country music. Have you ever seen that video? I think so, yeah. And I just thought to myself, I'm like, you know, if this was happening on my street, how would I react? You know, I, even people who don't care about politics it, would react to that. You know, that's, <laughs> you're just driving down the street, essentially, shooting at random people. And it's not to say that uh, some, that I'm not basically, I'm not saying that all soldiers or even all mercenaries that go over there have negative intentions, but it's obvious that the war breeds these kinds of circumstances, particularly in a stressful environment. Um, so, I mean, do you have any commentary on that? Yeah. Uh, it's not just the recent invasion that has made Iraq such a, a volatile country. You have to really look back at history. Uh, Iraq has always been an oil-rich nation, and they've had uh, a string of colonists and wars and coups and embargoes and more wars. And Iraq has just been a kind of torn apart throughout the 20th century and probably before that. Uh, the British colonized them, and uh, they've had wars with Iran. They've had two wars with America now. They've had embargoes. They've, you know, they're... they're population has been starving. So that, that these things have been building up in the country for so long that I could totally imagine them not liking it. You know, if, uh, what Ron Paul said was totally, if it would happen in America, we would probably act the same way because we're not biologically different than them. Uh, you know, the same stimuli and the same reactions, I believe. Right. You know, and it's, basically, particularly when it comes to things like the, the basic infrastructure hasn't even been rebuilt over there. Uh, like, a lot of them don't have water. A lot of them don't have electricity. You know, we, and I, I guess I can understand at the end of the day, you know, I mean, just these, these little things that people take for, you know, take advantage of, you know, take for granted here in the United States, deprived of them, you know, it's, it doesn't surprise me. In fact, it surprises me that there isn't even more insurgents. Um, another documentary I watched on the subject was Meeting Resistance, where a couple of uh, British, um, basically British journalists kind of risked their lives to sit down and talk to some of the insurgents. And the funny thing is, is the majority of them just said stuff like, you know, my brother was killed by a bomb, or, you know, I was not a member, of, you know, that's the other thing, none, none of them were members of the Ba'ath Party. In fact, you know, nobody in Iraq likes the Ba'ath Party. Because, you know, Saddam was, you know, totalitarian. There was no question. It was just an issue of the, the, the living conditions in Iraq after the invasion and how they just kind of stayed that way. 
um, was what motivated people to join the insurgency. And it's, I guess what it amounts to in the end is that it's just there's, there's no way that war should be the best solution to solve any problem. And I agree with what you mean about history. That's another thing that I've had to tell people because I, we've studied that quite a bit on B-Radio, particularly, um, I don't know if you're familiar with General Smedley's book, War is a Racket. Have you ever read that? I love that book. Yeah, we did a we did a whole show series on that book specifically, and you know it's just it, it's it amazed us because this is the guy this is before World War II if I remember right I mean he was right. predict, he was predicting World War II but he was still describing all the same stuff that you see out of the Halliburtons and the KBRs the the wasting of the money uh, the misspending and you know and just how all these corporate interests have so much you know uh, vested interest in what it is that you know, what's going on over there, and, you know, I guess, uh, you know, that's actually an interesting question, and in your experience anyway, I mean, in your own studies, and maybe even perhaps in your first-hand experience, did you get the feeling that there was, you know, a serious corporate invisible hand behind what's going on over there? Yeah. Um, KBR had a very large influence uh, on, on the base we were at. They were building all sorts of stuff. So was Blackwater. They had mercenaries there. Um, uh, I remember we had these crazy bungalows that were just like Connex boxes with uh, air conditioning units in them, and there was all this crazy stuff. There was construction all the time, and a lot of civilians with like not uniform fifty air conditioning driving around on nearly paved roads, and it was a lot of destruction, but it wasn't really helping us out, you know. And they right. give us a little comfort in our off time, which is great, but it doesn't really help us, quote-unquote, win the mission. It certainly wasn't helping the Iraqi people. No, not at all. Now, um, basically, when it comes to particularly, like, what, what, what does Iraq Veterans Against the War do? Let's talk a little bit about the organization. And we already been over why you joined. You know, essentially explain to the listeners what Iraq Veterans Against the War is all about. Uh, I believe they're sort of in four. They're kind of a putting uh, 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 out Vietnam veterans, which is a really big organization in the 70s. So what they do is they reach they reach out to not only Iraq veterans but also Afghan Afghanistan veterans. They're a little short-sighted in their name, but they accept anyone that has served overseas. Um, but what they do is they accept any veteran that wants to join as long as they can prove that they are over there. And uh, it's just a place to kind of uh, meet other people that have the same uh, uh, stories and ideas and stuff like that and really just hash it out. It's really for the veterans, but uh, they also provide speaking opportunities and uh, lots of other stuff. They, they're planning uh, something called... Um, oh, man, I can't remember the name. I, I feel ashamed. But they're, they're trying to stop... Uh, veterans who have PTSD or traumatic brain injury or have been sexually abused from redeploying, which is it's, it's illegal for them to redeploy if they have uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or traumatic brain injury or have been sexually abused. It's illegal for them to be redeployed. But what happens is the, the doctors will say, well, you don't have it. And if they don't diagnose you, they can, they can send you over. So essentially what they're trying to do is they're trying to bring uh, – uh, bring awareness to that, which is a really important thing because having those um, those 
issues is really bad, especially when you're overseas. So they, they do a, a great number of things. They're a great organization. I'd, I'd check them out if you're a veteran, or it doesn't even matter if you're just an ally or anyone who's uh, interested in that sort of thing. Right. Now, I, I actually I talked to somebody at their office, uh, like when I was trying to call to get this interview, and uh, they said that they actually were planning on doing something with the name to accommodate, you know, obviously, the, the veterans from Afghanistan as well. And I, I definitely see the, the unity that's needed. I mean, know that, like, for example, there was somewhat of a division between the, the veterans from Vietnam and the other wars. Like, they didn't feel like they were correctly included or uh, as if, like, the guys from World War II and Korea didn't feel like Vietnam was a real war. I imagine the average veteran who was getting shot at felt like it was a pretty rare <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. war. Um, so... Now, obviously, I guess that means, you know, people who, you know, you gather and such, you guys kind of offer support to each other? Do you have some kind of, like, support groups or something to, to talk about things? Or uh... Yeah. Uh, we just had a conference in June. Uh, at, no, I believe July. Uh, we had a pretty large conference in Austin where we got together. We had lots of workshops. And a lot of it is just, meeting other like-minded veterans and talking about your experiences. And it's kind of like just a, uh, uh, a uh, psychological session where you sit around and you just you hash things out, you know, and you tell people you can confide in them about any sort of nightmares you've had or, you know, experiences that you had that you just need to get off your chest. Everyone totally understands. Most of the people there are combat veterans. They've seen, they've been shot at, blown up, stuff like that, so it's a, it's a great place to, to, the people are just great to talk to if you're a veteran. Right. Now, I guess, uh, I imagine, because like you said, you know, there's, there's definitely a, a mentality that comes out of being in the military, the, the constant, you know, regular uh, conditioning, you know, I guess you could just call it outright brainwashing if you wanted to, but now, I mean, I, does this? I mean, do you guys have any opposition? Are like, are there organizations that are for the war or something, or do you, you end up in any kind of arguments or fights with other veterans or active duty personnel? Uh, yeah. Well, there's, I'm sure there's a million organizations that are for the war. I can name a couple, like I don't know, Halberton. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but yeah, a lot of veterans they get out, they, they still have the mentality that the war is great. And, you know, I respect their opinion. That's great. Uh, I try not to get in fights with other veterans because right. then it just becomes a shouting match and it's just, it's not, it's not helpful. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, a lot of, there's a lot of opposition. I was at a protest and this, this lady is leaning out of her car and yelling, I was in the army. What did you ever do? And I said calmly, well, I was in Iraq and I have a Purple Heart, so I kind of have a right to be here as as well as everyone else. <laughs> right. Yeah, that is one particular ad hominem attack that they can't exactly pin on you. I think that's one of the, the, the major benefits of this particular um, organization is because they cannot by any means claim that you guys are cowards or even, you know, or even pacifists in the, you know, in the general sense of the word. It's not like you're kumbaya flag-waving hippies or something, it's, you know, there's definitely, you've proven yourself at one point or another. You know, General Smedley Butler was a recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor, and he hated war when he got out of it. Um, so it just, 
it, it does kind of put you guys in a unique perspective because you can say, you know, if they want to say something about you being unpatriotic or, you know, or calling you a coward or whatever, you can then in many cases turn and look at them and say, you know, did you serve? Because I imagine a good deal of them probably didn't. Now, um, so you said that there's a, there's the other thing. You said there was something about some upcoming events that you guys are doing. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, yeah, the, I think it's a uh, nationwide event. It's not just a, it's not uh, just IVAW, but October 7th is the nine-year anniversary of the Afghan war. Uh, it already surpassed America's longest war. It's now setting records every day. But, you know, nine years, it's a, it's a milestone, horrible one. Uh, so it's just a way to, it's just a day to get out there and say, to the American public and to the world. We are still in Afghanistan. There are still people dying nearly every day. And believe it or not, we're still at war and we're still spending massive amounts of money to deal with this. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a trying, we're trying to wake up America and to remind them, as grim as it is, that the war is still going on. Right. Yeah, that's actually another major aspect of this that they... Uh, I had the filmmaker from the movie Mil Militainment Incorporated. I don't know if you've ever watched that. It's a it's a movie more specifically about how the media kind of turns uh, wars into education or not education into entertainment, um, and how it just you know to, to basically to pull on get you know, basically get more viewers. Now, in addition to that, though, he pointed out that this war is being depicted a lot more clean than the Vietnam War did was. That you don't really get to see the casualties. You don't really get to see the uh, the carnage, really. I mean, it's, there was actually a YouTube video that I hosted at one point um, where it said, uh, just like there's so many pictures, you know, bloodier pictures. Like there's this one in particular, there's like a pool of blood on the ground in Iraq. Uh, you know, just the, these images you just don't see. You know, the war seems so clean in the modern media. You know, and they talk about things, but they do so like, I mean, rarely do you see any pictures of, you know, we're taking you live to where a suicide bombing has just taken place or something to that effect. It's like they want to keep the war so uh, clean in the minds of the people that they, they don't want us to be thinking about the fact that there are real people over there dying on both sides. You know, um, I mean, if you, what, what do you think, actually, you know, as a former soldier you know, and a veteran, uh, specifically about how the modern media projects the war? Well, um it's not just the modern media. If you look back at World War II, uh, there, was a, there was a law that said you could not publish any pictures of dead U.S. soldiers or any servicemen. You were allowed to do it with, the, with our enemies, the Japanese, German, etc., but not Americans. So eventually that was, uh, that was lifted in either 43 or 44, and one of the first pictures published after that was three Marines that were dead on a beach. They were partially covered with sand because of the, the waves. And you couldn't see their faces. They had no distinguishing marks, but you could tell that they were American uh, citizens dead on the beach. And as soon as that picture was released, uh, the, the support for the war dropped a lot. And uh, I think they learned a big lesson because uh, then they stopped pu publishing pictures in Vietnam. They don't publish a lot of pictures in Iraq and Afghanistan. So they really learned their lesson there. Don't don't show carnage or anything like that because then the American people will realize what war really is and they'll 
stop liking it, you know. Right. That's actually one of my favorite episodes of the old Star Trek, where in uh, basically this culture had decided in order to make war more humane, they waged all of their wars in kind of a computer game, and then people who were listed as casualties would report to disintegration chambers. And the crux of the story was that the war ended up going on for thousands of years because the carnage of it was kind of invisible. I mean, obviously, they didn't like, you know, dying, but... Um, it was made so perfectly, you know, squeaky clean that you didn't, it didn't really take to them that war was carnage, that war was a scary thing. It certainly wasn't in any way a pleasant thing. So um, essentially, I mean, uh, um, basically one of the things that I think that it's great that you guys are doing here is to try to put a face on this from people who know what's going on, you know, uh, from from people who've actually been there to the front lines. I mean, I actually remember there was a speech not long ago, and I can't remember the fellow's name, but he, he did a very moving speech about how he felt when he got back from the war that, you know, that the terrorist was him. He he talked about his experiences pushing an old woman out of her house and, you know, dragging a little girl and pulling them out of the house and um, things along that line. I don't know if you have you heard this speech. You know which one I'm talking about? Uh, no, it sounds familiar, though. Right. Well, that's, you know, that was an example of it. You know, we had the same thing, actually, in the, the movie Vietnam and American Holocaust, which is another really good movie, and it really, really opened my eyes about Vietnam. I have never been able to look at Vietnam the same way. Um, it was just that, you know, it takes soldiers like you, uh, and more specifically, also soldiers who come forward to talk about some of the things that have been done wrong over there. It's, you know, very brave of them to do it you know, to come forward and say, I did this and I did that, and, you know, it was condoned or even suggested by my, you know, commanding officer. I think one of the quotes I saw on the website for your organization, actually, was, you know, that they said that just shoot anybody you think is a threat and your officers will take care of you. Are you familiar with that policy? Uh, we, that that was never told. Um, I don't, I don't remember any of my, uh, any of my fellow service members ever saying anything like that or hearing anything like that, but it start, it really uh, I, I'm sure that it exists. And just a couple of days ago, there was a story breaking of a bunch of soldiers in Afghanistan that would drive around and throw grenades in 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 the town just because the uh, the staff sergeant thought that Afghanis were subhuman and they deserved to die. So he said to the soldiers. Throw grenades whenever you see anyone. I'll take care of it. So yeah, I, I I do think that exists, but I don't think that everyone does it. You know, it's not it's not a widespread issue. But no, certainly it, not. And even I don't believe it's. You know, I I know enough servicemen over there now who would never participate in something like that. I'm not implying it's everybody, anybody, or even the majority. But situations like that, though, certainly. Uh, that was one thing I, I remember watching the movie Platoon, and it, they burned that village after slaughtering, you know, some of the elders. And it, as they're walking away from the village and, they're, and it's burning, I'm thinking, well, you know, if they weren't BC before, they certainly are now. You know, these sorts of actions are not pacifying the the population; they're making the insurgency bigger. And I don't. So yeah, by no means do I think all soldiers participate in any of that. You know, it's. But on the same token, it. it if it takes place just enough, it seems to help them to perpetuate the war. You know, and it, essentially, it just seems to me like it's so counterproductive. You know, they always talk about trying to win the hearts and minds, and, you know, and, I, and I've seen some positive efforts to that end, but it, it doesn't seem to get enough, uh, enough effort, at least not, you know, from what I've seen. Now, 
I've heard that some of the Canadian troops, for example, I don't know if this is true or not, but I, one of the Canadian listeners of my radio show, he was participating in a debate on the forums about uh, Afghanistan, and he said that his sister was in the war, and that, uh, or was, in fact, I guess still over there, and he asked her, you know, so how do you know who the insurgents are? She's like, well, at least when it comes to Canadian troops, the insurgents, you know, the, you know, the insurgents are the ones that don't invite you over to dinner. Um, you know, that I guess uh, the people of Afghanistan ask Canada to stay and ask the United States to leave. I don't know what differences in policies they have, but, um, but overall, you know, they must be doing something different if, you know, they're being asked to stay. So, and I guess with the, the point to this is not to say that Canadian troops are superior or anything like that. It's a matter of tactics. What are they doing differently? How are they gaining the trust of these people? Um, I mean, did you, I mean, I guess like when you were over there, what kind of um, activities or at least policies or anything along that line were put in place to try to help win the hearts and minds of the people of Iraq? Well, uh, one of my main missions was to, uh, uh, the main mission was to counteract insurgency, but also to help protect people that were building stuff in the town and to, I don't know, contact uh, uh, contractors in the area so they could help rebuild stuff. So we were trying to rebuild the town, uh, but also helping destroy it at the same time, which is a little counterproductive. Uh, but we would try to, I think we actually restored electricity and also water. It wasn't clean water, but at least it was flowing. Um, we did stuff like that. We were trying to rebuild a couple of schools, but uh, it's just its really counterproductive when you have the Marines trying to rebuild a place while they're also blowing it up. So, uh, you know, I... I I'm trying to think of some sort of positive thing we did, but it was mostly just walk around and make sure no one shot at us. So that was that was really it. Yeah, I imagine that that, that doesn't really effectively win the hearts and minds. Um, no. <laughs> but no, I, I know what you mean about it being counterproductive. I mean, it, it certainly is counterproductive for, for us to go blow things up and then have to rebuild them. But like particularly when we employ construction companies like Halliburton to do the rebuilding, you know, and those same companies are also involved with feeding and clothing and, or I guess, cleaning the clothing of you guys, it certainly is profitable, you know, to, to blow it up and then rebuild it and blow it up and rebuild it. In fact, you know, it's just, it's almost like uh, superior as far as, like, job opportunities than you would have in a civilized state like we have here in the United States. You know, you build something, you generally, well, that, that job's done. Now i got to go find something else to build. Instead, we can just kind of uh, repeatedly, you know, blow up the same structures over and over again and then pay some company an exorbitant amount of money to, to rebuild it. That's actually a uh, – have you ever seen the film No End in Sight? I've heard of it. Okay, I'll make sure that you get a link to it. That's definitely my favorite film about Iraq. But one of you, it actually um, surprised me that your superiors sent you out to find local contractors to build stuff because it was one of the things that – they, they went over in that movie, at least in some portions anyway, that the, like, there were these border forts that they wanted built. And, you know, that with local Iraqi assistance, they were able to build them for like a tiny fraction of the cost that Halliburton was making to make those same border forts. You know, and that there were a lot of situations, particularly since unemployment is such a big problem in over, you know, over in Iraq, you'd think that they would capitalize on it. Honestly, I mean, with unemployment being a problem, one of the things that drives people into the insurgency in the first place, you would think that they would just stop letting any private contractor build anything over there and let the Iraqi people do it themselves and give them assistance, obviously. I mean, it is 
our responsibility to help them. But when we're sending private contractors over there to make a bunch of money, it, it, it no longer becomes profitable to help people in so much as it does just to continually see the country in a state of war. Um, is it, I mean, what was your experience over there when dealing with private contractors? Well, I, I was in a really small town, and it was mostly uh, just a bunch of Marines. And uh, I never really came face-to-face with any contractors, and I don't, I don't think I ever saw anyone really building anything. Um, uh, the contractors in the town, pretty much non-existent. I didn't have any contact with them. Contractors in the main base, oh, there were a dime a dozen. They'd walk around with civilian clothes like it was California, you know. Right. Uh, but I didn't ever talk to them uh, a couple times, but like, yeah, yeah, I'm here for 18 months. I'm getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, and uh, you're getting paid thousands of dollars. It's okay. <laughs> right. What was, it, what was it the British said about us? Uh, it was like overpaid and over here or something. No, overpaid over sex and over here. Over, over sex, over, yeah. Um, you know, I guess that is kind of a, a drag, and I can understand why so many people end up like. You know, one of the things also they they, brought, they bring up in, um, I think it was actually Iraq for sale because they cover a little bit about what it's like to be a mercenary over there, and you know, it's something I generally have to point out to people that not every mercenary is you know as as, as, as Blackwater gets a reputation for, but some of them are just family men who just want to go over there for only a month and then come back to their families and have you know way more money than they would at their jobs here in the state. It doesn't get anybody off the hook by any means. I mean, it, obviously, I guess since you were kind of stationed in a small town, but I'm sure you talked to a lot of other veterans. Do you feel that the uh, kind of brutal reputation that the um, military contractors, like more specifically, I guess would say mercenary contractors like uh, Blackwater and some of the other organizations over there, do you, do you feel that their reputation is well-earned or is it exaggerated? Uh I, I think it's pretty uh, well earned. Uh, a lot of a lot of the, the Marines, I you know, said, "Oh, I hate being in the military. I just want to go join Blackwater." Uh, and that's what a lot of people do. They they join special forces, and the military spends lots and lots of money to give them all this advanced training. And as soon as they can, they get out and they go work for Blackwater, and they make ten times as much, still working for the same government, still doing the exact same thing. Right. So. They're really idolized, and not only because they got paid a lot, but because they didn't have superiors always looking over them, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you always hear them stories of them driving around trucks, and like the video you mentioned, just shooting people randomly. Um, uh, you know, you don't, you don't have those uh, rules of engagement and any superiors or anyone to look over you. You could, always, you could accomplish the mission without any sort of bureaucratic paperwork which is code word for, you know, blowing up whoever you want. Right. That's actually one of the, the scariest parts about that is that there isn't even really any effective way to prosecute members of these mercenary bands when they decide to do something illegal. It's something else they covered in uh, some of the films I've watched about this. There was a congresswoman who decided to investigate the murder of, I guess he was a, a servant, like a, the equivalent of a secret serviceman for an Iraqi equivalent of Congress, one of their parliaments or parliamentarians or something anyway, you know, I guess uh, remember Blackwater got drunk and shot him just because he thought it would be funny, and nothing came of it. And so this congresswoman is grilling the, the owner of Blackwater, and he can't answer any questions as to where this man who did this illegal killing is. You know, where did he go? Was he prosecuted? You know, and I guess there was it's, they're kind of untouchable. There's, there's really nothing you can do about it because 
They may even fire you on the books, but there's nothing to stop somebody who's gotten into the mercenary world to just go work for another company. Um, and for the longest time, actually, I, I, I had an Iraq War veteran friend here at home, and he told me that there was another organization, another uh, mercenary company based out of England, although they were not all um, British. Uh, they was He said that it was even more ruthless, like that apparently their, their job was to, get, to go in and do the sorts of things that no soldier would ever do, you know, to, in order to get the information they wanted. Uh, are, do you know what I'm talking about? Are you familiar? Uh not really. Uh, I'm guessing you're talking about like inter- interrogation and uh, waterboarding and stuff like that. Luckily, I never was was exposed to that. Uh, but I'm sure there are lots of mercenary organizations that are out there that we probably don't even know, know the name of uh, right. that are just doing all sorts of crazy stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, for sure. Now, um, I guess uh, it, it's been how long now since you've been out there? Uh, I was wounded on July 17th, 2006, so four years and a couple months. Do you still have any complications from your wounds? Oh, yeah, I'll have complications for the rest of my life, but uh, I've pretty much grown to uh, to work around them. So the, the human body is very resilient, you know. Part goes down, but uh, you can work around that. So right. uh, the doctors helped me out, which is good. Is the are you getting taken care of? Is your medical care good at least? Yeah, uh, that's that's one thing I'm pretty confident in saying that the medical care is a lot better than Vietnam, and I was I'm still to this day impressed by the military doctors, and it's sad to say they're only good because of that lots of experience, right? <laughs> you know, the only way to become a good trauma doctor is to have lots of trauma patients. So decades of wars. Uh, you know, hundreds, tens of thousands of people wounded. You, you learn to 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 uh, to know. You you learn how to repair someone. That's good. That's it's sad that that's how we have to learn it, but uh, I'm I'm very impressed with them, and I hope that they take that that knowledge into the civilian world and do some good with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've heard that there are, you know, depending on where you end up in the system somehow, I mean, I, I have a friend actually who is in the Navy, and he ended up in kind of a rough situation. They gave him the wrong size shoes, and then they forced him to wear them, and he kept coming back and saying, look, my feet hurt. I need to get rid of these shoes, and they never gave him the correct size shoes, and it ended up permanently, like, maiming him. Like, he has to walk with a cane now just because they gave him the wrong size shoes the whole time he was in there. And, of course, he tries to get help, and they won't help him. They say, well, you know, you signed X release form stating, you know, that you can't hold us accountable for these things. And, you know, I met the guy, and when he talks about his life, it's just so depressing, the various ways that this obviously complicated his life. And you just you wonder to yourself, how the hell does that happen? You know, and I thought that would be an isolated incident, but I have another friend who was in the Army, and he had the same problem. They gave him the wrong kind of shoes, and it uh, messed up his joints and all sorts of crazy stuff and they just they, they don't take they didn't take care of him um and that's i'm glad that you're having a good experience with it and, I'm, and I'm, I'm also glad that obviously if you are then hopefully you know a great deal of other soldiers are as well um now as far as like adjustment after getting out um you know obviously with the statistic that one in four of the homeless is a veteran um do you i mean what what are your feelings on that issue of like uh, being a soldier getting out and trying to adjust to the world is the government helping enough do you feel they should concentrate more in certain areas uh well that's a that's a pretty good question uh 
it really depends on the on the person. Uh, the reason I got so much good care is that I was wounded in combat, right? I got a purple heart, and they really they concentrated on those people, and you know there are some other people that would and they try to concentrate on them, but it's mostly um, devoted to combat wounded. So like the like the guy you're talking about who whose feet were all messed up, I could totally imagine that happening. Uh, you go to the the uh, the corpsman, the medic, and you ask for help, and they say, "Well, here's some pills and some water," you know. But <laughs> yeah, uh, that happens a lot. Uh, so I was lucky because I was wounded. Um, getting out, I was at a really nice hospital in San Diego. There were a lot of civilians that were to help me out. I got some good scholarships when I got out um, to go to school, and I had my family supporting me. I had a lot of people supporting me, and. I had a I had a pretty smooth transition, but I cannot say that for everyone because a lot of people they'll do four years they'll do a couple of tours in Iraq or Afghanistan they'll they'll have serious emotional trauma, physical trauma, and they won't tell anyone because it's a sign of weakness. Mm. And they'll get out and they'll try to go to school, but they'll have this recurring dreams, nightmares. They'll have all this bad stuff. And uh, it can it can eat you away inside. It really can. Uh, and if that's not treated, then their life is not going to be the same as it was before. It'll just be it'll be ruined. So, whereas I got a good, I received a very, um, uh, I received very good treatment when I got out. Can't say that for everyone. Um, so I I can imagine that yes, one in four veterans sounds about right. Just because. You, you go through so much stuff in the military that no one comes out unscathed, regardless if you're uh, a cook in the Air Force and you never leave, you know. You still, I'm guaranteed you're still going to have some problems. Right. Now that's, you know, um, well, I mean, obviously, you know, boot camp in and of itself does a lot of bad things to people's mentality. It's, there, there is kind of a, I mean, it's not all by any means, but you, know, you do often run into this situation where, these people have a difficult time relating to civilians after they get out because of the kind of almost elitist mentality that comes out of it. And some of it I totally understand. It's difficult to take somebody seriously when they think that they have a crisis because they can't, you know, get the prom dress they wanted. After, you know, when you've seen, you know, you've been in a crisis, you've been shot at, you've been, you know, you know you've seen body parts flying around. It is difficult at that point to, to uh, even you know, be able to sympathize with, you know, the average person's problems. And it can create a real divide, I think, uh, on both sides. And unfortunately, it means that, you know, a lot of people who have not experienced those things don't really understand where soldiers are coming from. And then the soldier, of course, you know, feels kind of lonely because they, they can't really adjust back to, you know, to normal society. That, that same guy I told you about who told me about the uh, more ruthless brands of mercenaries, he ended up re-enlisting, even though he really... It, you know, he didn't really care for the war so much, but I asked him why, and he's like, well, I just, you know, they take care of you. They take care of everything, and I'm, I just don't want to deal with this anymore. And, and he went back into the Army um, just because he couldn't live in civilian life anymore. It's almost like a, a prisoner who comes out of prison and doesn't know what to do with himself. Are, are, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Uh, it, it's, the, it's that way for me, too. I seek out a lot of veterans, and... Uh, that's what that's what's great about Iraq veterans against the war is that it's veterans with veterans. You know, they still have that camaraderie. 
but you can also just say whatever you want freely. Um, but I, I always, I always, uh, you know, look for other veterans, and when I meet someone, we, we talk about our experiences. I don't go into the whole anti-war spiel until I understand what, you know, what their situation is. But uh, yeah, uh, for the rest of my life, I'll probably do that. I'll always be looking out for Iraq veterans. Uh, that's just the, that's that's the way it's always been. Since there's, since uh, the time where you go through a really bad experience with someone, you're you're linked with those people. You really do um, build a brotherhood in the military. So, yeah, when you when you when you do four years and you're dropped down in the civilian world, some people can react very badly, and that's why it's good to have older veterans uh, say, "Hey, come here, talk to me." You know, I'm a civilian, but I'm a veteran. Uh, and I can help you out. Uh, it's really good to have some sort of mentor, and I had a lot of them. And I was I was very fortunate. It's good to have an organization like the one you're in that can obviously help people who are going to be in need of such mentors. Now, a uh, good question that this came out of our chat room, uh, which you guys, anybody who's listening now, you can click the chat button to join the other chatters live. And one of the things he asked was just, uh, first of all, he asked, uh, just what do you think of the WikiLeaks uh, stuff. I mean, obviously, I'm going to ask because I've done a show about it in the past. The recent WikiLeaks video of the uh, guys in the helicopter who shot up all those people. Um, are you familiar with that? Obviously, I'd imagine there's no way you couldn't be. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very familiar. I remember when that broke. Uh, uh, I, right before that, like maybe a week before that, IBAW sent out an email and said, anyone that wants to do any sort of media stuff, just let me know and we'll put your name on a list. Mm-hmm. So I said, all right, yeah, I have, I have no problem with that. So uh, they put my name on a list, and then the day that the WikiLeaks video broke, some guy called up and he says, hi, I'm with this uh, media organization, and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind giving a couple of interviews. I'm like, all right, whatever. Wasn't really expecting a lot. And then I got it. That day I had a million requests for interviews, and it was, it was a long day. But the video itself is, yeah, it's, horrible it's a it's a classic example of a uh, a uh, overreaction and not looking at what you're targeting at not following the rules of engagement you know it's it's a classic example and i'm I'm very glad that uh the alleged leaker Bradley Manning allegedly leaked it and whoever leaked it i'm I'm happy that they did so because uh, it's, it goes back to what we were saying. People need to wake up. They need to realize what the war is really going, or really about, and they need to see videos like that because if they're paying the taxes. They need need to so, see where those uh, tax, where that money is going. Right, and, and how it's like obviously, you know, just the, the situation with that. I guess just you know that was another situation because my my family owns a van, and I and I found myself thinking. You know, because there were two kids in that van. I have two kids, you know, five and three. And I'm just imagining what it would be like for my little kids to experience, you know, their father getting shot up, you know, or seeing, you know, people's body parts outside their vehicle. You know, and we look at something like that, and to us, it's it's actually a, a, a quote from the Joker from the recent Batman films, one of the things he said that really stuck out in my head. Uh, the Heath Ledger version of the Joker was he's like, you know, people get shot in some faraway land and, and nobody cares because it's all part of the plan. You know, it's just like it's totally normal. You know, if, if something like, you know, that incident with an attack helicopter blowing up a minivan with, you know, with, uh, or at least shooting people in the minivan anyway, 
with kids in it and all that stuff. Where to happen in the United States would be this huge problem. We'd be we'd be talking about it all over the place, and you know, and that happens there, and we didn't even hear about it until somebody leaked it. Now, what about this recent leak of these uh, intelligence reports uh, about Afghanistan? The Afghan war diaries? Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, I wasn't in Afghanistan, so I don't have the full knowledge of what was going on. But it, I'm guessing it's very similar to uh, to uh, Iraq. But uh, again, it's uh, it's not as important as the the video, uh, the WikiLeaks video, to be leaked. But it's still very important to uh, to see how they can really spin some uh, some attacks. And a lot of those probably aren't very truthful. Uh, so I'm guessing that most of them are, but I'm guessing a lot of them are, uh, you know, they get together beforehand and they say, hey, this is the story, you know, this is what we're going to say. Right. So it's good that those are out there, and it's great that WikiLeaks um, said uh, to veterans, pour over these things and find out which one you're in or which one you knew about and look to see if it's accurate. Uh, because then veterans can come on and say, whoa, 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 I remember it completely different. This is not truthful. You need to talk about this, or we need to talk about this. So it's, it's, it may be as important as the video, uh, more subtly, but uh, just as important. Right. Now, and that's, yeah, that's something actually, uh, once again, it, it comes up a lot, is the issue of when the, op- when the opposite side is dead, all you're kind of left with is, you know, an officer making the report who may or may not even have been involved in any kind of atrocity or even an accident, you know, where a lot of civilians were killed, you know, and it's kind of a question of there's no, uh, what would I say, no objective force going around the battlefield to make sure that these reports are accurate, you know, so you're just kind of left to hope that the people who essentially are supposed to be policing themselves are filling out these reports accurately and then even worse, you know, that if, if a report shows anything negative, that the people on top, you know, of that situation are not going to be in a position to just uh, shove something under the rug. Um, I mean, it's, some of it is just the nature of war in of itself, which is why I usually tell people, you know, I don't really uh, take sides in wars anymore. I, I generally think that the villains are whichever jackass manipulated the situation for financial reasons to make a buck off of it. You know, that's, I, I realized that my attitude had changed about it completely because some of my friends in the, you know, activist movement, they showed me the video of what Israel had done in Gaza to, you know, like basically some of the bombings they had done. And, and I said, you know, I, I don't like this, and I don't approve that, you know, that Israel did this, but this doesn't really look any different to me than when a member of Hamas goes into a coffee shop and blows himself up. You know, it's, we need to look at the root cause here you know, what's making these problems? Who's making this money? You know, who's making the money off of this? Because there's almost always money, you know, attributed to every war in one fashion or another behind the scenes. Find out which jackasses are doing that, and then you're going to have your real villains. You know, um, little things that people don't know about, like the Fanta Orange, uh, Fanta Orange Soda Pop was created by Coca-Cola Company because there was an embargo. You weren't allowed to do business with uh, Nazi Germany, so Coca-Cola made a dummy corporation and created Fanta uh, so that they could sell soda pop to the Nazis. Um, and I don't think that that, you know, I don't think that by, you know, by any means uh, Coca-Cola helped to illustrate, you know, illustrate, orchestrate that conflict. 
But that's an example of these people who obviously, you know, corporate bodies that take advantage of war situations. Now, I mean, you said that you did a lot of research. Can you describe, like, what kind of research you came up with that helped to turn you against the war? Uh, it was more philosophical. Um, like, I read a book called War is a Full... War is this meaning? Uh, the author slips my mind right now. But it was, it was a, kind of a philosophical treatise uh, by this photographer um, who was a war photographer, and he walked around um, all these conflicts like Kosovo, and he took pictures and stuff like that. And he became addicted to war, and it really is addicting. It is a drug. Um, the, the adrenaline rush is like something you will never feel. Um, but he goes around and he takes all these pictures and he becomes addicted. And he realizes, oh, man, I'm addicted to war. I can't believe it. Um, so he, he very articulately describes his addiction and he points it out that, you know, a lot of the soldiers have this addiction and it's not like they go over there to, to get this drug. It just, it's an accidental injection of it, pretty much. So that book which is it's a crazy story because another veteran friend of mine gave it to me. He bought it because of the, of the title, which is completely inaccurate. It's a, it's a very vehemently anti-war book, but it's called War is a Force that gives us meaning. But he bought it thinking, yeah, I'm going to get pumped up. I'm going to love war after this. And he read the first couple pages, and he's like, I don't know what, the, what they're talking about. And he gave it to me, and he said, read this book and tell me what it's about. So I did. It was completely accidental, and I, I agreed with it 100% because I felt the same thing in me. I felt that addiction to war. And that, it was completely accidental, but that's what helped started me to turn around. So, um, yeah, most of my research was philosophical, historical, looking at other war protesters like Smedley Butler, uh, Ron Kovic, uh, who's a big hero of mine, um, Louis B. Puller, Jr., who is the son of a very, very famous Marine general named uh, Chesty. If any Marine knows his name. Um, they're all uh, uh, old, not old, but uh, older uh, war protesters, um, mostly from the Vietnam War. So looking at them and saying, hey, you know, there are other soldiers out there. There are other service members that are against the war. So it's not like it's a big, it's not, it's not this crime like everyone makes it out to be. Right. And that's that's one of the reasons why I joined a, uh, the IDAW because other people had done it and I wasn't as afraid. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's actually that's yeah, another major aspect of you know having an organization like that is to be a support group to not make you feel alone because I imagine you know individually particularly they they probably put a lot of pressure on you know servicemen but when you have a bunch of them standing next to you it definitely changes things. Um, so. It's funny that you know, you say addicted to war. I I actually uh, there was a comic book my my radio show endorses called Addicted to War that is apparently endorsed by uh, it's either yeah I think it is endorsed by Iraqi veterans against the war but it's a it was written by a professor who actually gathered all this historical information explaining that's actually how I learned who Smedley Butler was was through this comic book um, and it also went back even further you know that the war against the Native Americans we used all kinds of propaganda to convinced the American people that it was the right thing to do. Uh, you know, that's where the savage Indian thing comes from. And it's not to say that Indians were all innocent, because obviously some of them were not. But they were made out to just be these terrible monsters back in those days. And that's why I said to people, you know, you have to have a sense of history, because 
this is not a new phenomenon. You know, it goes back even further than Smedley Butler. It goes back, you know, to the very beginnings. You know, and honestly, even you, know, you can go back further than that. You know, back in the medieval times, even there were conflicts that were being funded by somebody. You know, for the purpose of making profit, and that seems to be the main driving force. I can't think of a single war that we went into that was completely clean. I mean, obviously Adolf Hitler needed to be stopped, but when you look at the people who bankrolled what he did, you know, obviously Prescott Bush being involved in that. Um, you know, that definitely kind of casts a shadow on it. It's like, did they create this monster because they wanted to make money off of, you know, the, the war efforts to defeat him? You know, it's the same thing with Saddam Hussein. We, we created Saddam Hussein. We, we made him who he is. Allegedly, some people even believe that we might have trained him. Um, and we, ha we do that in South America all the time. That's, that's not, even un, you know, it's not even a question. We know that we have these training camps that train these monsters in South America to protect our corporate interests down there. Uh, so, but overall, um, it's, I, I really hope that people take into account the kinds of stuff that you guys are doing, the things that you guys are doing and bringing to the table, uh, particularly as protesters. Now, does your organization work closely with any other organizations? Uh, let's see. I believe the Answer Coalition. Um, uh, I know a couple IVAW members that are also in that, of one of which is a full-time uh, person working for them. Uh, I think Code Pink, maybe. A um, couple others, I can't think of any off the top of my head. We have a really great relationship with Vietnam veterans against the war, as you can imagine. Uh, there's always someone there uh, whenever we gather. Uh, I can't think of any others off the top of my head, though. Well, you know, it would seem that, uh, particularly with um, an organization, I'm actually kind of glad that the Vietnam veterans are stepping forward to give you guys support. I mean, I imagine, you know, their insight, because they've been all through this before, is probably uh, very valuable to you, the wisdom that they've gained in their time. You know, um, I'm glad to see that there's collaboration between those organizations. You know, you meet Vietnam veterans all the time. People tend to forget just how long ago that was. Um, and I guess, would you say that, I mean, do you have any uh, people particularly that you interacted with in that organization that have, have been able to help you with their experiences? Yeah. Uh, my friend, uh, who was in my unit, first person I met that was ever in. Go ahead and continue. Uh, finish your story. Uh, uh, my, my friend that I met, um, his uh, name is Bob Pratt. He was a member of Iraq Veterans Against the War. He was the one that helped turn me around because he was in my unit. He was in the exact same place where I was, and he was able to say, hey, war sucks, you know. And there's a lot of people I've met in IBAW that are uh, very, very happy to meet, a lot of Marines especially. I love seeing Marines there because I'm a Marine. I kind of have a bias. Right. But... Uh, well, the, uh, the, just real quickly, the live broadcast is about to end, but the rest of this conversation will be on the archive. Um, thank you for tuning in to V-Radio. Please visit vradio.org, v-radio.org, and consider a donation to keep us on the air. But, um, all right, go ahead and continue. Um, and uh, if you've finished your, your story, we'll, we'll cap this off, and um, it'll be, you know, it was great to have you on. But go ahead and uh, continue your story. Uh, well, I haven't been involved with IVW for too long, uh, I wish that I joined while I was still in, but you know, hindsight is always 2020. Mm -hmm. But um, still working to develop relationships. Uh, I know a guy out in LA 
who's uh, an answer in the answer coalition, and we're trying to we're trying to build some stuff up. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, October sixth and October seventh are going to be big days for uh, war protests. So anyone listening out there right now, go outside on October sixth and seventh. Find someone out there that you can protest with. It doesn't matter who you are. A civilian, immigrant, it does not matter. If you have uh, a body, go out there and do something. Excellent. Well, um, thanks again for being on. Um, I'm sorry that we got interrupted by the ending there, but uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation. And uh, to any of the listeners who just joined for this show, um, as I said earlier, you can go to vradio.org, v-radio.org, check out the archives. I've also got the must-see TV section that has a lot of very good free documentaries that you can watch, including No End in Sight, which is the one that I recommend about the Iraq War um, in particular, because it's, uh, they basically, they managed to get a hold of some people who were very close to the administration, including an aide to Colin Powell. Uh, They got to describe just how badly we screwed up when we went into Iraq in the first place. And one of the, actually one of the things that allegedly led to Colin Powell resigning, uh, and I would recommend it to anybody who wants to understand the Iraq War because uh, the interviews that they got were top-notch. This was not just like a conspiracy film where you're hopefully getting a couple of people, you know, who might have credibility. Virtually everybody that they included in that film, you know, was there on the ground while it was happening, watching what had taken place. And once you're finished, I mean, honestly, that film makes me physically angry. <laughs> you can find that film on um, in my must-see TV list along with a lot of other great films on this topic and many others. So thanks again for coming on, Josiah. And um, once again, uh, if uh, anything comes up, any breaking news or whatever, please don't hesitate to call me if you need to do another show to share with my listeners about any events that are coming up in the future. Um, I really support what you're doing, and I, I look forward to seeing what, you know, what more benefits you guys will bring forward to you know, basically just for Americans and for mankind in general, spreading awareness of the errors of war. Yeah. Well, WikiLeaks is supposed to release another video soon, so that'll be fun. (laughs) Well, when the time comes, um, I hope I can count on you as a panelist to discuss that, uh, if that's something you're up for. Yeah, I'll I'll do anything. Excellent. All right, well, thank you, and uh, this was a – once again, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to V-Radio, and thank you to everybody who has supported me in the past, and uh, you will be seeing more from me soon. I'm actually working on planning a show very soon about the subject of education in a resource-based economy. Uh, and thanks again. Uh, go ahead and say goodnight to the listeners. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening, and uh, just try to keep an open mind uh, about everything. What, uh, do you happen to know the uh, the website URL? Do you, do you where they where they can go to learn about the, uh, your organization? Yes, it's www.ivaw. Uh, India, uh, and I can't remember all that stuff. Uh, so if they look up Iraq veterans against the war in Google, they'll probably find it. Yeah, you can figure it out. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, everybody. And um, I'll probably talk to you off the air a little bit after the show is over here. I'm going to go ahead and end it now. I'll leave you guys with some words from Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jacques Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.